is speaker presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. All right, let's bow our heads as we begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we're able to study the book of Revelation, the prophecies of the time in which we live. We thank you for the opportunity of being able to study your word. And Father, you have told us that the book of Revelation is all about revealing you. We pray that you will be revealed to us tonight. And as you are revealed to us, that we will be inspired to become more like you. And so we pray for your presence of your Holy Spirit and the presence of your holy angels. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 16 as we begin our study this evening. Down through history, we find that human beings have been fascinated with the concept, the idea of building empires. And so we see all the way down through history, one empire after another. We can go back to ancient Babylon, where it began with Nimrod, and we can chase it down through Egypt. Large empires established here. And with these empires, we find that they all have a number of things in common. Each one of these great empires are are driven by men who are seeking power and wealth. Now, typically, we find that the human nature, human beings are not satisfied. You know, there was once a an American general who'd just been promoted to be a six-star general, the highest-ranking general in the United States. And somebody asked him the question, how much power is enough? And do you know what his answer was? Just a little bit more. And so we find when we look at the great empires of the past, they would accumulate all of this power and they would have ultimate power. And they would accumulate all of this wealth and they would have ultimate wealth, more wealth than they would ever know what to do with. But is the human heart ever satisfied without Jesus Christ? The answer is no. And so once you have all the power and all the wealth, what is it that you are left to go for? Worship. And what is it that we find That is the central issue at the end of time. It is all about worship, isn't that so? That's what we've been finding night by night. The issue is all about worship. Now trace down through the history of these great empires of the past and so many of them have been focused, in fact the vast majority of them have been focused on this issue of worship. Once they've got all the power and they've got all the wealth, then they say, I want you to worship me even down through into relatively modern times, this same concept keeps rising up. Well, the question that comes up is, who will be the final superpower, the last great empire that our world will see? Well, let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 16 as we begin this particular Bible study. Revelation chapter 16, and we'll begin by reading in verse 13. It says this, I saw three unclean spirits, Like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. It goes on, it says, For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world 
to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. I want you to notice what's taking place right here. You have three unclean spirits. So immediately we know at the end of time that there is going to be a tremendous deception that is going to come from the spiritual realm. It's going to come from the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. We know who the beast is. We know who the dragon is. Tonight we're going to find out who is the false prophet. What do we know about him? Now, the first thing that we notice, of course, is that these three entities go out to who? The kings of the earth, the political leaders of the earth. And what are they going to attempt to do? The Bible says to gather them together. The Bible says that's exactly what takes place when you go down to verse 16. He gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. The Bible speaks about a global gathering together against God at the end of time. Now, when we look around our world today, do we see a global gathering together? Absolutely we do. We call that globalism. Do we see it being driven by religion? We don't have to look very far. You don't have to scratch the surface very much. And you will find that religion is the driving force in what is happening in our world today, just as it was in ancient Egypt, just as it was in ancient Rome. And so we come to the issue of the false prophet. What is the false prophet? Who is the false prophet? What is this a code or a symbol for? Let's turn our Bibles over to Revelation chapter 19 and let's read some things here about the false prophet. Let's start to make a list of some of the things that we know about this individual. First of all, we find that he is religious in nature. We know that immediately because he is called a prophet and a prophet operates within the world realm of religion. Isn't that so? So we know that he's religious in nature. We also know that the false prophet is globalist in nature. The Bible says that he goes out to the kings of the world. He's one of the entities that goes out to the kings of the world to gather them together against God. Well, let's see what it says here in Revelation 19 and verse 20. In verse 20, the Bible says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that did what? What does he do? He does miracles before the beast, isn't that so? Yeah? What is the purpose of these miracles? To deceive those that had received the mark of the beast and those that worshipped his image. So he does miracles before the beast to deceive people into receiving the mark of the beast and making an image to the beast. So let's put these up here. Okay. He is united to the beast. They work in coalition with each other. He works miracles, the Bible says, before the beast. He deceives into receiving the mark and into worshipping the image of the beast. Okay, so we've got some identifying characteristics here of the false prophet. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. And we will read about another beast. Revelation chapter 13 has two beasts. We've already studied about the first one. The first beast of Revelation 13 is the Antichrist. The question that now comes up is, well, who is the second one? Well, let's see if we can find some answers. Where does the second one start from? It actually starts in verse 11. 
So up until verse 11, he's talking about the first beast. He's talking about the Antichrist. Now come down to verse 11. It says, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb. He spoke as a dragon, and he exercised all the power of the first beast before him. He caused the earth and those which lived therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceives those that live on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Okay, here we have the second beast. What is the second beast doing? Miracles before the first beast. Let's look at what we have here so far when we look at the second beast. First of all, we find in verse 11 that he has two horns like a lamb. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But a lamb is a symbol of Jesus Christ. So we know that he's religious. Then in verse 12, he exercises all the power power of the first beast and forces the earth to worship the first beast. So not only is he religious, but he is also globalist and he is working in coalition. He is united to the first beast. Then we come down to verse 14. He deceives those that live on the earth by the means of the miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. That's the false prophet, isn't it, right there? Yeah. What's he going to deceive them into doing? Saying to those that live on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. He had power to give life unto it. Verse 16, he causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. And so when we look at the second beast of Revelation chapter 13, we find that he is religious, he is globalist, he is working in coalition with the first beast, he works miracles before the first beast, he deceives into receiving the mark and into worshipping the image. So who is the false prophet? The first beast of, sorry, the second beast of Revelation 13. Simple as that. Now you've got your answer, right? We can all go home now, we know who the false prophet is, Right? False prophet is the second beast of Revelation chapter 13. Well, you know, you're wondering, well, well, who is the second beast of Revelation chapter 13? So we need to do a bit of study, don't we? We need to find out who is the second beast of Revelation chapter 13. What is this beast a code or a symbol for? So let's begin by finding some identifying characteristics, some identifying marks. Now, one of the things that we've talked about before in understanding Bible prophecy is that two of the most important identifying marks that you can discover are time and place. Haven't we talked about that before? In other words, if you can understand the time period in which the prophecy takes place and you know the geographical location is like a grid reference on a map, all you need to go is to that geographical location on the surface of the earth at that particular time and you're going to find the answer to your prophecy. So let's begin by looking for these two identifying characteristics. And to do so, we're going to begin by going back to Revelation 13 and verse 8, where the Bible speaks about the first beast, the Vatican. It says, All that live upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Then in verse 9, if anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Now let's understand what's taking place right here. The Bible says he that leads into captivity. In other words, the first beast would lead people into captivity. 
We have a long and detailed history of how exactly that took place here for a long time. In fact, if you go back to verse 7, it was given unto him to make war with the saints. The most conservative historians in our world today put the number of people who died at the hands of the Vatican at around 50 million people. Others who include the religious wars place that number at 150 million people. That's a lot of people that were led into captivity and killed. But if you go back in the prophecy, in verse 13, it says, And I saw one of its heads, as it were wounded to death. Verse 14, the Bible says, in the end of that, that he received that wound by a sword and did live. So there we go back to verse 10. We know when it says, He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kills with a sword will be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Now we spoke about the deadly wound, didn't we? We spoke about the Vatican receiving a deadly wound in 1798, a fulfillment of the 1260 day or 1260 year prophecy. Isn't that so? Right on time. Don't you love Bible prophecy? When Bible prophecy gives you a time period, it's always fulfilled right on time so you can trust the Bible. Received a deadly wound. Of course, the Pope at that particular time was taken captive. Uh, the, the, the papal government was abolished. It was decreed there would never be another Pope. He died in, uh, in, in exile in France, and we could talk about that history right there. However... Let's look at this here. The Bible says, he that goes into captivity, he that leads into captivity will go into captivity. He that kills with a sword will be killed with a sword. We know the history of that. But then we go to the next verse. And in the next verse, it says, and I beheld another beast doing what? Coming up out of the earth. Isn't that what it says? So you have a process. He is coming. He is rising to power. And so here's what you have. As one beast is going into captivity, the other one is rising. As one is going down, the other one is coming up. Do you see where the Bible is now giving us a time period for the rise of the second beast? Isn't that so? Now we need to look for a geographical location. The Bible says that the second one arises from where? Where did the Bible say that the first one rose from? The sea. Now, that's a very clear contrast, wouldn't you say? God here is using a code to try and give us an example. He's trying to give us, he's trying to catch our attention by using this and trying to create a contrast so that it catches our attention because he has a message for us. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15 tells us what the sea symbolizes. Revelation 17 and verse 15, he said unto me, The waters which you saw, where the horse sits, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So we know what the sea symbolizes. It symbolizes peoples, multitudes, nations and tongues. And we know that the Antichrist, therefore, will arrive from amongst peoples, multitudes, nations and tongues. In other words, a densely populated portion of the earth. Now, if the earth is the opposite of the sea and the sea symbolizes peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, the opposite of peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues is a very sparsely populated area. We don't have established nations, wouldn't you say? Yeah, so that immediately places us 
at this particular time period into the new world and not the old world. Now, we said we'd talk about America in prophecy, didn't we? Yeah? Well, the new world, we're talking about the Americas and Australia. Well, let's do a little bit of history and let's see what we have so far and let's see whether this gives us any clues right here. Okay, so some identifying marks. He rises out of the earth, a thinly populated area, no established nations, and he's going to rise on or around 1798. We know that from the time prophecy that we're given in Daniel chapter 7 and in seven other places in the Bible where you have the 1260 day or 1260 year prophecy. It's interesting when you, when you read the, those who studied this prophecy before its fulfillment, the conclusions that they came to, John Wesley in 1754, this is before 1798, said this, another beast, but he is not yet come, though he cannot be far off, for he is to appear at the end of the 42 months of the first beast. So John Wesley, he knew that the Vatican would come to an end, receive a deadly wound in 1798. And he knew that the second beast would rise to power on or around that time. And so he said, he's not far off in his day. Of course, Martin Luther was another one who wrote about it in 1516. He said about 300 years off. And so these people knew exactly when this would take place. So if we go to the new world around 1798, what do we have taking place? Is there any nation that is rising to power at that particular time? Of course, Australia did not become a nation until when? 1901. But let's go to the United States and let's see what happens. If we go back, the Bible says that he would be coming, a process rising out of the earth. We go back to the Declaration of Independence. It took place in 1776. The War of Independence, because they declared it, then they had to own it from 77 to 83. Then you had the Constitution was voted in 1787. Then you had it ratified in 1788. Then you had the first president elected in 1789. Then you had the Bill of Rights adopted in 1791. And then you had first international recognition as a nation in 1798. Do we have a process here taking place of the United States rising to power just at the right time? Now, at this particular stage, we need to ask ourselves the question as people were reading and understanding this prophecy and identifying the United States as the last superpower, did it look like a superpower? Not at all. It was a sparsely populated area, largely controlled by Red Indians who used to fight against them with Stone Age technology and win sometimes. The British Empire, we mentioned this the other night, ruled over one out of every five people on the face of the planet. If you were reading about the last superpower in the Bible and somebody back then said it will be the United States, you would say you have got to be joking. It would be a little bit like me standing up here and saying, as I said the other night, New Zealand will be the last superpower. You would also say New Zealand's never going to be a superpower, right? Well, America was smaller than New Zealand is right now back then. And it was less of a nation than New Zealand is right now. And yet people who studied their Bibles, they knew exactly what was taking place because it was in the right place at the right time. However, the Bible gives us some more identifying characteristics. Let's look at them as we work our way through Revelation chapter 13. In verse 11, it says, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a what? 
Now I'm going to put up here that that means that this government would be based on Christian principles of government. What does a lamb symbolize in the Bible? It symbolizes Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And of course, horns being a symbol of government, it would be a government, government based on Christian principles. Now let's stop and consider this for a moment. Why does the Bible at this particular point direct us to the lamb? I want to diverge for a moment and consider the lamb and consider his implication for us and then we'll come back and see how it applies to this particular nation right here. You see, when the Bible raises the issue of the lamb, it is directing our minds to Jesus Christ. What is the book of Revelation all about? What is the first line? The revelation or the revealing of who? Jesus Christ. And so here the Bible is revealing Jesus Christ and it reveals him as the Lamb. Now Jesus has many different names in the Bible, doesn't he? He's called Jesus. He's called Emmanuel. He's called the Son of God. He's called the Son of Man. We could go on and on and on down through the list. Each one of those names tells us something a bit different about Jesus Christ. We mentioned it the other night. What does the Lamb tell us about Jesus Christ? That he would give his life as a sacrifice. It, It points us to him as our sacrifice. In Revelation chapter 14, it brings up this subject in relationship to the 144,000. And in verse 4, it says this, These are those which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, let's stop there for a moment. I sometimes get all kinds of people very, very worried at this particular point. They say, oh, I can never become a member of the 144,000 because I'm a woman or because I'm not a virgin or whatever it might be. Let's think about what the Bible is talking about here. This is the book of Revelation, right? Written using symbols, symbols and codes. What does a woman symbolize in the Bible? A church. What does a defiling woman symbolize? A defiling church. They're not defiled with false doctrines, the Bible says. Then it goes on and it says, these are those which follow the Lamb where? Wherever He goes. When Jesus was the Lamb, where was He going? He was going to Calvary, isn't that so? These are those which follow the Lamb wherever He goes, the Bible says. They are dedicated, they are surrendered to Jesus Christ and it does not make a difference. Where that path leads, they will follow Jesus there because they love Jesus because what He has done for them. Follow Him wherever He goes. They were redeemed from among men, the Bible says, being first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. You know, if you hold your finger here and go over to 1 Peter, just back a little bit to 1 Peter, chapter 2. Peter says something interesting. He says it very similar to this in verse 21. He says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us. Did Jesus suffer for us? Yes, he did. He suffered on the cross, isn't that so? Jesus suffered for us on the cross And in suffering for us, the Bible goes on and says, and he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Does that mean that every single one of us here is going to be crucified? Are you sure? Paul says this, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Ah, that's not physically crucified though, is it? 
Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why does Paul say I am crucified with Christ, friends? The answer is so simple. Because he has given his life entirely to Jesus Christ. It is a full surrender to Jesus Christ. It's a dying to self and giving your life to somebody else. And when the Bible speaks about Jesus as the Lamb and us following the footsteps of Jesus, this is what the Bible is speaking about. You know, I find it interesting that Paul uses the example right here of crucifixion. He says, I am crucified with Christ. He doesn't say, you know, I'm hung or I'm this or that or the other. And sometimes I wonder, why does he use the symbol of crucifixion? Well, obviously, that's, the, that's what, how Jesus died. But there's something else about that. Do you know something significant about crucifixion? With crucifixion, you can never commit suicide by crucifixion. Did you know that? I mean, you think about it. You can't do that, can you? You can't nail yourself up. You might be able to nail one hand up. How are you going to nail the other one up? And that tells me something about Jesus. You know why? Because when we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I want to be fully surrendered to you. I want to die to self and live for you. Jesus says, you can't do that on your own. But I will give you the power to do it. I will be there with you every step of the way and I will enable you to walk in my footsteps. It's all the power of Jesus, friends. You try to do it on your own and your toast. Here in 2 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, it says, For even here unto were you called, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Anybody ever tried that? Anybody ever tried, like, I'm going to just not sin today? In your own strength, how long are you going to last? Do we have a God who can cleanse us from all sin? Revelation chapter 14 again. The Bible says they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from among men, being first fruits unto God and the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Don't we serve a wonderful God? And you know, when I read here in Revelation chapter 13, that the beast has two horns like a lamb, it directs my mind right then and there to Jesus Christ, that He gave His life for me so that I can live for him. And that's why I choose to give my life to Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, by his power, to follow his footsteps wherever they lead. Don't you want to make that same decision? Amen. Praise God. Now let's put that concept now into the prophecy that we are looking at right here. The Bible says that this particular beast, and we know that a beast is a symbol of a nation, would have two horns like a lamb. In other words, it would be a Christian nation. And when it focuses on Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, this makes it an evangelical Christian nation or a Protestant Christian nation. And it would have Protestant or Christian principles of government. Well, did Jesus speak about government? and how government should operate when he was here on this earth. You know, there was an interesting time when some people came to Jesus and they were trying to trap him. What does Christian government look like? Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 20. What does this actually look like? And these people, they're trying to trap Jesus and they came up with a really good one. They thought they had him. 
Luke chapter 20. And in verse 21, they said, they asked him saying, Master, we know that you say and teach rightly, neither accept you any, the person of any, but teach the way of God truly. And they give him a little bit of flattery to start with. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to give taxes to Caesar or not? And now they figure they have him trapped. You see, if Jesus says, yes, we should be giving taxes to Caesar, they'll say, there he is, he's unpatriotic. If Jesus says, no, we shouldn't give taxes to Caesar, they'll say, there he is, he's raising a rebellion against Rome. You see, they've backed Jesus into, can you back Jesus into a corner? No, you can't back Jesus into a corner. I love this because Jesus goes on and he asks, he asks a question. He says, show me a penny. Or he starts off by saying, why tempt you me? Show me a penny. Whose image and superscription does it have? And of course, they pull out a penny and on that penny is the face of Caesar. And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Give therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things which are God's. Notice that Jesus is, is, is laying down a fundamental principle right here that is established throughout the Bible. There, there are those things that belong to the government and there are those things that belong to God. Keep these two things separate and don't bring the two together. Wherever we have a union of church and state or a reunion of religion and government together, the first thing that you find is religious persecution and bigotry. All you need to do is look around our world today and we see example after example after example of it. Isn't that so? You know, you go to the Old Testament and the system of government that God outlined for his people was the separation of church and state There was a king. His name was Uzziah. And he decided that this whole concept of separation of church and state was no good. So he decided, I'm good enough. I'm going to go into the temple and I will offer incense there. That was the work of the priests. The priests came in. They said, no, 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 you can't be doing this. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. At that very moment, God struck him with leprosy. And he had leprosy from that day forward until the day that he died. And you can go there today. You can see the foundations of the house that he built outside the walls where he had to quarantine himself. And the foundations of those house, that house is still there to this day as a testament to the fact that God has separated church and state. The United States, of course, was built on two great principles, two great powers, Separation of church and state, republicanism and Protestantism. Two horns, two powers in one nation, just as the Bible said. Now, the Bible doesn't just say that he would have two horns like a lamb. Let's go back to Revelation 13. Let's see what else it says. Revelation chapter 13. Let's get some more clues. As we work our way down through, let's study the codes that the Bible gives. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. He came from the earth. He had two horns like a lamb. And how did he speak? Oh, he speaks as a dragon. We're going to come back and talk about that in just a moment. But we know who the dragon is, right? All right, so he starts off good, Christian principles of government, but does it stay that way? No. Continues on. 
exercises all the power of the first beast before him and forces the earth and those that live therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He's going to form an alliance, the Bible says, with the Vatican. In verse 13, he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. In verse 14, there's something very significant here. He deceives those that live on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to those that live on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had to wound by a sword and did live. Okay, so here's what's going to take place. He's going to make an image, a copy of the first beast. He's going to make a copy of the Vatican. We know who the first beast is. But how does he go about doing that? Does he just do it himself? No. It says this, saying to those that live on the earth that they should make, should form a copy of the Vatican. Where does the power lie in this nation? Notice that the power lies with the people. It is the people who are forming the copy of the Vatican. That makes it a republican form of government. Government by the people and for the people. Now we mentioned that the Bible says that he speaks or legislates like a dragon. We have to then ask ourselves the question, how does a dragon speak? How does it work? If we go back to Revelation chapter 13, of course, a government speaks through its legislation. Revelation chapter 13 We see the first beast, verse 1, rises up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns upon his horns and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. The beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. His feet were as the feet of a bear. His mouth as the mouth of a lion and the dragon gave him power and his seat and great authority. So here we find that the dragon has power and great authority. Isn't that so? So when the Bible says that he's going to speak like a dragon, then we know that he's going to speak with power and great authority. Now, what does this dragon symbolize right here? What does it symbolize? Satan. Absolutely, it symbolizes Satan. What does the beast symbolize in Bible prophecy? A nation. So we ask ourselves... When the Bible speaks of Satan in the form of a dragon, and a dragon, a beast symbolizes a nation, which nation in particular is being referenced right here that Satan is working through? Well, the answer is very simply found if we go back, and we've looked at this before, but we'll look at it again just to review it. The Bible says in verse 4, Revelation 12 and verse 4, sorry, Revelation 12 and verse 4, and here's the dragon, his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Who is the child? That's Jesus. Who was it that stood before the woman who tried to devour the child, tried to destroy Jesus at his birth? Satan did, working through which nation? Imperial Rome. The Bible says that he would speak 
like a dragon. He would speak with power and authority. He would speak like imperial Rome. Now the U.S. dominates the world with the rise of the New Age Roman Empire. Notice the language being used. Straight out of the Bible. People are coming out of the closet on the word empire. Americans should admit the truth and face up to their responsibilities as the undisputed masters of the world. The fact is, no country has been as dominant culturally, economically, technologically, and militarily in the history of the world since the Roman Empire. Is this what we see happening in our world right now? Oh, most certainly it is. A superpower has arisen, just as the Bible said that it would. In fact, every year that goes by, this prophecy is more and more and more fulfilled. It is way more fulfilled than when I first started studying Bible prophecy. We see way more of this taking place right now. So then we ask ourselves the question... What is it that the United States is going to do at the end of time? The last superpower. Well, the Bible says that, number one, it's going to form an alliance with the first beast, an alliance with the papacy. These two are going to work in coalition with each other. Then the Bible goes on and says that they're going to form an image or a copy of the beast. So if the United States is going to form a copy of the Vatican, then we have to ask ourselves, well, what kind of government is the Vatican? Now, the Vatican has the exact opposite kind of government to the United States. You see, the Vatican is a perfect union of church and state. You have the Holy Roman Catholic Church and you have the Holy Roman Catholic See. One is the government, one is the church, and the two are united in one person, and that is the Pope. Now, that would be very radical, don't you think, for the United States to do something like that. There's a couple of other things that are associated with that. You see, as soon as you have the union together of church and state, you have religious persecution. Isn't that so? We have the history of it down through the Dark Ages. Whatever the Vatican government was there and had power, there was religious persecution because they had a judicial system that they could use to enact that. When the Constitution of the United States was written, it was a reactionary constitution. And very few people actually realize this. It was reactionary in that the founding fathers of the United States were looking across the Atlantic and they were watching the Spanish Inquisition in process. And as they saw the Spanish Inquisition operating and people dying every day because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ, they said, how can we write a constitution that will ensure that this will never come to our country? And so they put a number of key elements within their constitution. We're not going to look at all of them this evening, but we're going to look at a number of significant ones. First of all, They instituted the separation of church and state. And secondly, freedom of religion. Now, freedom of religion, as we're going to discover in a few moments, doesn't exist within the Roman Catholic Church, the Vatican. The other thing that they instituted was the right to remain silent. Now, you say, well, you know, that's that's important, but is it really that big? The reason that they instituted the right to remain silent was very simple, because if you have the right to remain silent, you cannot 
use torture or coercion. And of course, they looked across the Atlantic. They saw that this was the primary means being used in the Inquisition. They said, okay, let's put this into the Constitution so it can never come here. So these were foundational principles that at that particular time were being used by the Vatican and the US Constitution was written in uh, uh, reaction to. So let's consider for a moment the issue of the separation of church and state. And by the way, these three issues here that are fundamental to the United States Constitution no longer exist in the United States Constitution. First of all, we'll compare separation of church and state with what the Vatican has to say. And Leo XIII said, let us examine that liberty in individuals, which is so opposed to the virtue of religion. He's actually writing specifically about the United States right here. This was an encyclical letter that he wrote against the US Constitution. Namely, the liberty of worship, as it is called. This is based on the principle that every man is free to profess as he may choose any religion or none. Let me ask you, does God give you that liberty? Absolutely. God gives you the freedom to choose any religion or none. He will never force anybody to go into heaven against their will. Leo XIII said, A liberty such as we have described is no liberty, but is degradation. Then you had Pius IX who wrote a syllabus of errors. Now, this list of errors was, once again, it was written against the U.S. Constitution. Error number 15, every man is free to embrace or profess that religion which, guided by the light of reason, he shall consider true. Error number 24, the church has not the power of force, nor has she any temporal power, direct or indirect. In other words, he's saying we have the power to force you to do whatever we say. The question I ask is, have things changed? Of course... You know, we would say, yeah, things have changed in recent times. Well, let's consider for a moment. Benedict, in his homily during Mass, the Pope said, recent decades have seen a challenge to global civilization. I want you to catch this. Where the centre can no longer be Europe and not the West. Well, I wonder what he's got in mind. The need emerged to elaborate a new world political and economic order, but at the same time and above all, a spiritual and a cultural one. Well, what kind of spiritual one? That is renewed humanism, he said. Do you know what humanism is? Humanism is based around humanity can do it. We don't need God. That's what humanism is. The Pope said that while politicians, scientists and researchers play important roles in the modern world, it is necessary to place at their side the leaders of the great non-Christian religions, traditions, as well as Christian leaders. In other words, there needs to be coming together a union of religion and politics in our world right now. The Bible said, that this would take place, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. That includes the religions of the world, not just the religions within Christianity. That's what we see happening right now. In the United States, Chief Justice William Rehnquist made this significant statement, the wall of separation, he said, between church and state, is a metaphor based on bad history, a metaphor which has proved useless as a guide to judging. It should be frankly and explicitly abandoned. Now, it's important to understand a little bit about the American system. It is different from our system. You have three levels. You have the presidency, the judiciary, and Congress. 
the judiciary, where you have the chief justices, is the entity that interprets the law. Their interpretation becomes common law for all courts underneath of them. As a result, they become a legislative body in and of themselves. And it has been this court more than any other institution that has worked to bring down the United States Constitution. The US Supreme Court has fundamentally changed the ground rules separating church and state. In a term marked by one blockbuster decision after another, the US Supreme Court has altered lines of demarcation between church and state. The Bible said that they would form an image to the papacy. That's exactly what we see taking place right here. The Bible said that they would form an alliance with the papacy. What do we have here? American Vatican Alliance. And once again, what are we having here? This article was about the re-establishment of diplomatic ties between the United States and the Vatican by Ronald Reagan just before George Bush Sr. came to power and announced in 1990 the beginning of the New World Order. And of course, if we look to the religious, the, the evangelical religious leaders of the United States, what are they doing? Are they saying we should have separation of church and state? Well, let's ask the question. Prophecy given to Benny Hinn. Thus says the Lord, I will tear down this separation between church and state. I will use miracles to do it. It will be the youth that will rise up and tear this veil down. How did the Bible say in Revelation chapter 13 that he would deceive the world? The Bible says he deceives them by the means of those miracles which he had power to do to form an image to the beast. In other words, to form a union of church and state. Almost straight out of the words of Scripture. Christian Coalition Road to Victory Rally. Many of the speakers railed against the separation of church and state. Joyce Meyer summed up the sentiment stating separation of church and state is a deception of Satan. That's pretty heavy, eh? I wouldn't have expected that from Joyce Meyer, but anyway. She went on to note that the conference is bringing the political and the religious together. In conclusion, the rally was a celebration of a union of church and state and impressive flexing of political muscle fueled by religious fervor. Well, we continue on. Freedom of religion. Where are we up to? Problem with the Smith decision is that the United States Supreme Court has gutted the free exercise of the First Amendment. It does not exist anymore. It's interesting. This took place back in 91. In 93, um, Clinton actually re-established freedom of religion through Congress because it had been taken out of the Constitution by the Supreme Court. So he re-established... The problem with having it as a law of Congress is that it no longer is an inalienable right. So the Constitution recognises it as a right that belongs to all people. Now it's a law of Congress, and the people who make that law can also rescind that law, which they did three years later. We move on. The use of torture. Fundamental principle in the past. Time to think about torture. Well, we'll trace it through. 2001, it's a new world. Survival may well require old techniques that seemed out of the question. A few years later, naked prisoners terrified by attack dogs or humiliated before grinning female guards actually portray stress and duress techniques officially approved at the highest levels of government. Well, how high? 
Continuing along, Bush, along with Defence Secretary Donald Rumsfeld and Attorney General John Ashcroft, signed off on a secret system of detention interrogation that opened the door to such methods. And has anything been done to change those laws since they were instituted? No, absolutely not. Now, some people got into trouble about it at the time. Of course, they got into trouble because the media got hold of it and it was politically incorrect, not because it was illegal. What about Australia? ASIO has never had powers of coercion. You know what the word coercion means? That's another word for torture. It's never had powers of coercion and detention before. The ASIO bill goes further than corresponding legislation in other countries facing terrorist threat like the US and the UK. So just in case you were thinking, well, that's wonderful, I'm here in Australia. We're immune from it. That's the Americans over there. Yeah? One of the chief justices who opposed this said this. He said, permitting a coerced confession... In other words, one obtained through torture, which could be part of evidence on which a jury is free to bear its verdict of guilty, is incompatible with the thesis that ours is not a what? An inquisitional system of criminal justice. This guy knew exactly what was taking place. He said, we are forming an image to the papacy. We are forming an inquisition. That was the judicial system of the Vatican through which they tortured people during the Dark Ages. Problem was... He was in the minority and therefore lost. Now, when we consider for a moment the alliance between the United States and the Vatican, the Bible said that they would work in coalition with each other. Let's think about the history for a moment of United States and Vatican relations. In 1864, Pius IX wrote his syllabus of errors against the US Constitution and as a result... America cut all diplomatic ties with the Vatican. Then a little while later, in 1899, Leo XIII named a heresy after the United States Constitution. And in 1903, he wrote an encyclical letter against freedom of religion as found in the United States Constitution. And in 1961, John Kennedy came to power, the first Roman Catholic president ever elected after promising not to obey the Pope. It's interesting, he didn't last too long, did he? Hmm. I found this an insightful statement. In 1960, the Roman Catholic John Kennedy went from Washington down to Texas to assure Protestant preachers that he would not obey the Pope. In 2001, George Bush came from Texas to Washington to assure a group of Catholic bishops that he would. Has anything changed in recent history? Oh, yes, friends, it has changed dramatically. We are seeing the fulfillment of Bible prophecy right here. We are seeing an image to the beast being formed. Continuing on. When asked what he saw, when he looked into the Pope's eyes, President George Bush responded, God. This is a man who is a Methodist, a Protestant. He went on to state, this is not a Pope from Poland. This is a Pope from Galilee. What's that another way of saying? His name is Jesus. Call him the highest moral authority on earth. And then, of course, we come down to Barack Obama. Has anything significant changed? We found this the other day. His um, Chicago mentor is Jesuit priest. His chief speechwriter, Jesuit trained. His senior military foreign policy advisor, Jesuit trained. Um, Communications director, Dan Pfeiffer, Jesuit trained. And we could, you know, continue on. Time magazine, April 14, 2008. 
why the Pope loves America. Has anything changed? The Pope came to America. What happened? An American rabbi even addressed the Pope as his holiness and quoted from Psalms 133 verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to live together in unity. The Chicago Cardinal Francis George addressed the Pope on behalf of Catholic leaders in America. He listed theirs in the Vatican's common priorities over the next several years. Well, I wonder what they might have been. Among them was the handing on the faith in the context of sacramental practice and the observance of Sunday worship. We've been studying about that, haven't we? Here's an interesting observation. If you look at the historical enemies of the Vatican, Orthodox, Islam, Communism, and Evangelical Christianity... The Orthodox Church split off in the 11th century. Islam has been a thorn in their side since the 6th century. Communism was raised up for the purpose of destroying the Bolshevik Revolution, of destroying the Orthodox Church, and when they were double-crossed and bought out by the Orthodox Church, became a bitter enemy of the Vatican. And evangelical Christianity has been a thorn in the side of the Vatican since its inception. And this is where Vatican persecution has been focused down through its history. But then let's consider for a moment. George Bush Sr. in 1990 announced the beginning of the New World Order. And has anything changed since then? U.S. military action, where have we seen it? We've seen it in the Balkans. We have seen it in the Islamic world. We have seen it against communism. The difference between this list And this list is now that this group is working in coalition with that group, just as the Bible said. Now let's go down to the end of the passage. You see here, this explains to us a lot about what is taking place in our world right now and what will take place in the future. You see, many people ask me the question, when the mark of the beast is enforced, how Will it be enforced? Well, the answer says in verse 15, he had power to give life to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause or force that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be what? Killed. He causes all. Who is it that causes? He, the second beast, the United States. Causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads that no man might buy or sell, except he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Where is the power coming from, friends? To bring this mark and to establish it in our world? It's interesting. The Vatican said Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible. This transference of Sabbath observance is proof of the fact and any Protestant who keeps Sunday acknowledges this. And the United States says because Sunday is the Sabbath of the majority in our land and has been nationally established as the day of worship. It is the duty of all. All should be compelled, notice here, forced, coerced to observe as the Lord's day. We further emphasize that it becomes the duty of the government to observe the observation of the day. Friends, when we see what is taking place in our world right now, we see Revelation chapter 13, this central prophecy in the Bible being fulfilled. And what it tells us is this, we have a loving Saviour who is soon to return. 
You see, we can get bogged down in all of the details and all of the history and everything that is taking place around us right now and we can go home and even this evening we can switch on our television and we can see dramatic events taking place in relationship to this prophecy right here. But all of these point us to one thing. In fact, they point us to one person. They point us to Jesus Christ. Notice that even in this prophecy that deals with heavy issues at the end of time, right in the middle of the prophecy, you have a reference to the Lamb, a reference to Jesus Christ, a reference to the person who gave his life for us. Friends, we have wonderful news here because the Bible tells us that Jesus is coming soon. I'm looking forward to him coming soon, aren't you? You're looking forward to Jesus coming soon? Yes, praise God. God is so good. Let's bow our heads as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your incredible love for us. We thank you for this prophecy. And as we have just really scratched the surface of what is actually taking place in the fulfillment of this prophecy right now, Father, we pray that you will encourage our hearts with the fact that this is just another sign that you are coming back soon. We pray that you'll prepare us for that great day, that you'll bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit, that you'll draw us close to you, strengthen us in our relationship with you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 02-4973-3456.